before we get into the episode, for anybody that's new to the podcast, can you quickly speak to what we're doing here, what the purpose of the show is, and can you recenter any new listeners on the What We Don't Know podcast and what they can expect? So I guess let me take a step back. I've been the beneficiary of meeting many incredible activists over the last few years through those interactions and through uh, the education I've gained in those conversations, I feel like I've now acquired a much more grounded view of what needs to happen in our society. And some people take those experiences and then kind of hold on to them selfishly. It's like, oh, now I'm, now I'm woke because I, I've had these friendships and these experiences. Now I'm a woke activist. And it's, it's not about that. Like, it's not about, you know, me. I didn't learn so I could be a special person in the world. You know, I, I just feel really grateful for that exposure. And I just want to give more people that exposure. Not everyone can be in the rooms that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Look, my only theory of change, really, I, you know, I can go on and on and intellectualize about different things that need to happen with society. But my really my only theory of change is proximity. This show is really just an effort to create more proximity for a general public to these incredible activists and change makers and entrepreneurs and all these leaders changing the world that I've been lucky enough to come into proximity with. Uh, so that's really what this show is about, is like ha- having a tool that helps all of us upgrade our thinking around the issues of our time. Beautiful. Yeah, let's get into the episode. Welcome back to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with Phineas. Phineas, who are we chatting with today? Today, we have a very exciting guest, Shatezkot Martinez, who is a an environmental activist, hip-hop artist, someone who has been in the world of activism since childhood. And yeah, I thought it was an incredible episode. What made you want to have Shatezkot on the on the podcast. This is the first time we've been able to talk with any activist that is um, indigenous and doing activism through an indigenous lens and for indigenous people. Uh, And it's a blind spot for me. Even though I've done so much uh, work with maybe black activism and marginalized communities, I've interfaced with indigenous organizers in a very limited way. Really, Shatezka being the only, you know, personal friend that I've tried to assist at different times. and, and, And that was more in like, as a friend and less in like a professional way. Also, what I found compelling about him was he's definitely seems like a representative of youth culture or of culture in mm, general. Yeah. You know, he's kind of an arbiter, yeah. not just of his activism and his work in support of environmental issues and our relationship to the earth, but also of culture, right. adding that layer to his activism. Yeah, he's at this intersection of a few things that are happening in the world, right? There's climate activism and then there's youth-led activism in a few different issues. And then there's obviously this very important conversation around racial justice and making amends for, you know, our history of racism and colonialism and all these things. And and he kind of sits at the intersection of all that. And we see, especially in the last few years, how pop culture has become an important element of those conversations. Whereas in the past, you know, famous people and artists and entertainers might have shied away from those conversations. And now they are uh, increasingly stepping into those conversations and in in some cases becoming leaders in those conversations. And so, yeah, he, he sits in an interesting seat for the moment. Yeah, and people who are uniquely positioned to advocate for this issue, right, because they grew up in it and it's, it is true to who they are versus a celebrity or somebody that has fame attaching themselves to an issue retroactively. There's a distinction there that I think is important. Right. And for him, right. it does. It did feel like in listening to the conversation that 
this is something that he was really born into in a lot of ways. And everybody has a story. I mean, you have a personal story that brought you to the activism that you're passionate about. But I find that to be also compelling for you personally and also all the folks that we have on the show, not just Shatev Scott. Yeah, I mean, he there's you know videos of him at like three, four, five <laughs> leading marches. His mom started this organization called Earth Guardians, and he became the kind of de facto mascot and then you know leading voice for this organization. And uh, but yeah, he's at an interesting inflection point where he's he's figuring out you know what his own niches when within this movement and he talked a lot about like celebrity culture around the climate movement and him trying to figure out how much he wants to embrace that and utilize that to be helpful and how much that might be regressive towards this larger movement and so um anyways it was just great to chat with him at this moment in time absolutely well i'm excited to uh present Scott martinez <laughs> let's get into it Tess Scott Martinez, thanks for being on What We Don't Know, man. I appreciate you. I just want to give you the floor in that, like, how, how would you define the problem you're tackling? Absolutely. I think the the organizing space that I came up in, you know, and I'm now grappling with both with this organizing history and as an artist looks at, I guess, just like human relations with the earth and with our land. And inherently, I think that really ties into, as you said, so many other things, a relationship with the current economic system, our government. And I think I've really, I've really tried to push myself further in understanding this from, from perspectives of like just frontline indigenous organizers and frontline organizers of, of, of color who have really done a lot of the groundwork that has brought us to where we are at in the current conversation around both the climate crisis and just ground us in, in alternative understandings of how we can relate with the world around us. The problem is is varied, but I think the problem inherently is like our our relationship to land, our relationship to where we live, where we stand. And I think that is demonstrated in, in the policy that we see, you know, in our society. It's demonstrated through right. economic practices. It's demonstrated through, you know, social relationships between one another. And yeah, I think we're we're at this at this moment where we can really look at that relationship and see that that is the catalyst that has created the climate crisis, the, cri- the, the climate crisis being, you know, a symptom of our disharmony with our relation with ourselves, with each other and with the land. Right. There's like a lot of people are tackling the climate crisis from this kind of science lens of, you know, we're putting out too much carbon emissions. We don't. It sounds like you start you start the conversation from a philosophical lens of what is our relationship with this planet in general? What's our right? What's not our right? Etc. How would you how would you describe the current problem with like modern philosophy around how it relates to the earth? Yeah, I think I think you can track it back to pre-industrialization and and look at settler colonialism and mm. the connotations that that has had in many different parts of the world give specific context to the region that we speak of. But like you know, me growing up, a son of you know indigenous immigrant father from Mexico, growing up in the states you know, looking at the climate from a little bit of like this Western perspective, grounded in like a lot of indigenous philosophies that I that I came up with, really understanding that it is in the best interest of the existing structure of the settler government to uphold this this relationship, the certain defined relationship with land, with place, 
with natural resources that allows us to believe that that is exploitable in the same way and then this the same framework and the same mentality is what justifies the exploitation of people of communities of labor of indigenous lands of clean water right so i think you know these infrastructures that we have created since the founding of you know the united states of america and, and this is speaking very centric to like what i've experienced in this country but totally. like the infrastructure doesn't exist to actually protect people it exists to protect capital it exists to protect mm -hmm. corporations. Um, our energy grid is not set up for energy democracy and to ensure that people can have clean power, have access to, to energy when things like these increased catastrophes land in our communities. Um, or even the pandemic, I think, really exemplified how like the, the way that this country operates actually is totally okay with you know, black and brown poor people dying from this virus while the wealthiest people in this country and on the planet continue to grow their wealth. To an extent, a lot of our efforts around tackling the climate crisis are so we can continue behaving the same way, right? It's like, well, we don't want to stop consuming at this capacity. So maybe we can recycle or maybe we can do these other things. And you're saying like, look, philosophically, we are locked into this idea of extraction, whether it's from the earth or, you know, extracting from each other, from other communities, et cetera. But there, there's this like greater philosophy around like just like people's rights to extract that we haven't really made amends with. And we're hoping like a lot of like tech and maybe a few changes here and there will stop us from having to face this like bigger philosophical question about how we're behaving. No, that's on point. And it's, it's buying us time in certain cases, but it's totally ignoring the opportunity that we have as a culture and as a society to like fundamentally challenge this colonial perception of land of space of resources that got us into this mess like the united states as a whole has not come to terms with the mass genocide that it, that took place in order for our current system to exist or, or in a lot of ways right. to the enslavement of african peoples these histories that are so like such fractional portions of it are, are taught to us in school and as we grow up we understand it that there's so much erasure that goes into us even understanding that like yo these these systems that like enslaved people and stole land and genocided like millions of indigenous people across these continents right that is what is actually fueling the destruction of the planet as a whole right now i know like when i was taught history it was like you learned the history of like colonialism and then there was like a chapter to the side about like genocide and slavery i mean even that is new but it was like oh let's talk about the genocide and slavery versus like this chapter is actually about genocide and slavery, right? This this is actually the key characteristic of this era. And it doesn't just exist in history, too. It's like the impacts of colonialism continue to reverberate through totally. and shape, you know, these different relations that we have with, with land and all. At the risk of digressing, I mean, that was one of the most inspiring things to me about the latest round of these like BLM rallies, et cetera, this last year, is it felt like the conversations finally went beyond policing. And we there was a lot more conversations about like the reverberation of, you know, colonialism. I remember um, the Netherlands, no, Belgium took down like King Leopold's statue in Belgium, like understanding the mm -hmm. history there. And I wonder, you know, from your perspective, from this indigenous perspective, was there part of you that was like, oh, cool. I don't know if you even noticed that, but if you did, were you thinking maybe this conversation can even evolve deeper and be more inclusive? And did you feel like the indigenous cause did get to participate in those conversations or do you feel like it kind of fell short? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing that I've really appreciated about a lot of like forward thinking indigenous organizers is just the strong emphasis and affirmation of, of just collective liberation and really understanding mm. like the liberation of our black kin as 
essential to like the liberation of indigenous people mm. and a lot of black organizers too like on vice versa really understanding that you know frameworks of of land back you know and, and reparations for our black kin and um, those things are very intertwined and very connected and so i think conceptually that entered like the space the the dialogue in indigenous communities in a bigger way and also like we're pushed to confront a lot of anti-blackness in indigenous communities that is inherent and those identities also don't exist in isolation because we have so many of our relatives that are black and indigenous you know that occupy both that, that have both of those identities and so as everything was playing out over the summer you know post the, the murder of george floyd and brianna taylor and, and things were getting really intense in the streets and really powerful and the conversation around police abolition and defunding the police you know entering these different spaces the conversation did go just from you know reform and body cams and like police accountability and firing killer cops mm -hmm. to like what do these alternative futures look like what is what is a world beyond yeah. you know the current violence in our communities the current systemic violence that our black relatives are experiencing what does that look like in in and that alternative world benefits all of us totally you know that 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 alternative world does have the liberation of all peoples in mind um and so you know very tangibly we saw this kind of collective awakening play out in how racist mascots that have been you know indigenous organizers that have been fighting for a long time to get these racist mascots removed from pro sports teams like right. with the washington football team and then we could see that with the toppling of racist monuments and statues to colonizers like the reclamation of columbus day to indigenous people's day all of that was pushed further and further and i think we started to seeing actual strides and and a lot of that had to do with black and indigenous unity there is a lot more work to be done to really ensure that the continued conversation around indigenous sovereignty really stands true to a commitment to black liberation and that we just continue showing up in that good way like otherwise we're falling short and our vision is short-sighted if it doesn't include this like broader context, you know, and, and I think, right. you know, you can see like even black radicals throughout history and from Fred Hampton and, and, and look at what the Black Panther Party did and was building coalitions with whether it was like the Rainbow Coalition and working with like the mm -hmm. Young Lords in Chicago to the American Indian Movement and like the Red Power Movement that was popping off around similar times and like really seeing each other too at Standing Rock where there were different Black Lives Matter activists that were showing up at the encampment to, you know, stand in support and hold that line of solidarity you know folks coming from right. flint michigan who had experienced this crisis of damaged contaminated water so yeah like that it needs to be tight-knit i think it needs to continue to be yeah and we need to just keep learning and unlearning i think that like blends really well into your work now you had a super interesting inflection point in your life you're starting a new initiative you want to talk a little bit about what you're going about now yeah i mean i've been uh I've been in the climate space for a very long time, and that's like a lot of what I'm I'm known for as as like a, a spokesperson in in that way, and and it's cool, and like I'm grateful for for my journey and how it's taken me to where I am, and I think I've done a lot of work over the year of 2020 to like really reorient myself and how I engage with this movements and how I leverage my platform and how I leverage my artistry as well to push conversations further than I think my vision like allowed for them to go in the past and and. You know, I think I outgrew like a lot of spaces that I was organizing in as well. Um, and so an initiative that began actually in 2019 under the umbrella of, of this organization I've been working with for, for a long time that my mom founded called Earth Guardians is uh, this indigenous youth leadership initiative, which, you know, originally was like, let's create a, let's bring a bunch of indigenous young leaders onto the land and create a space 
to learn, to grow, to heal, to be together, and just bring like different youth from different experiences, different tribal communities to just like pull up and, and, and really talk about like what is building power look like for indigenous youth, you know, specifically in orientation to like the future of the climate movement and the future of these conversations around right. building like a more holistic uh, front line of, I don't know, just su- just supporting the folks that are on the front line have been doing the front lines work. Right. And you felt like this gathering space and these gatherings of leaders was missing so far. What do you think is when this isn't happening, you know, without this, what what are the more dangerous aspects of, of kind of everyone doing this frontline activism without this coordination or without, you know, being able to sit in community and coordinate? Definitely. I think that the climate movement has like transformed a lot in the last several years. And I think this last year was really important in the fact that like these social justice issues really rose to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And I think it forced a lot of climate organizers and organizations and aside in a lot of different spaces that I organize in just really being caught up and being like, yo, what it like people talk about climate justice and use that language without really understanding that framework and right. doing the research or being curious enough to like push themselves to dive into that. So I think the harm of not having these spaces that really centers the voices of indigenous youth of you know, in different instances, also like young black and, and brown organizers in these conversations, like, I, I don't really think there is effective climate organizing that happens without a level of intersectionality in the framework in our approach. Right. Um, and I think that had been missing in the past. And so these kind of gatherings were important, not just because we we're like, we're a bunch of native youth, and we want to make the climate movement more intersectional. We're like, now nah, we want to focus on building power within our own communities, because we know that like, whether or not there is a spotlight or there is like book deals or celebrity behind, you know, what it is that these like young leaders have been doing, like indigenous people have been carrying the weight of the ba- like keeping the earth in balance for generations. Right. And, you know, I've, I've, in doing a lot of research, I've heard this stat a lot, like indigenous people are like four to 5% of the global population, but we protect 80% of the world's diversity mm. of, of biodiversity that is, you know? So like we are, we are directly, responsible for handling protecting defending the lands that the whole world needs for survival and for its well-being so i think that was kind of part of what we had in mind it's interesting you know you bring up the climate space from someone who's not like i'm ancillary in the climate space for like helping folks like you etc but i'm not in it it seems incredibly white from the outside looking in just because of who becomes notable in there it reminds me a little bit of like also the parkland shooting and those kids becoming the face of like gun violence prevention even though you know there's been obviously black kids in, in america black and brown kids exposed to so much gun violence that have been fighting for their life for a long time although it seems like talking to talking to some of the folks that are organizing parkland kids they're doing a good job kind of recognizing that leaning leaning in trying to create space and, and platforms for for other people are you feeling the same from the folks that have become the like you know de facto faces of the, the climate movement uh, a desire to get a more blended, uh, more diverse set of, of leaders in front of people? Yeah, I mean, that, that's one really interesting thing that I think I experienced with my own, like, platform is the the, mm-hmm. the further that I got into a space of being a face of the climate movement or, like, this really ingrained into this, like, leadership position, the more removed I actually felt from community. Interesting. And that was actually counter-revolutionary. It was counterproductive to to the greater vision. And so I think the conversation around, you know, white, youth like you know Greta I think is the most notable like example like giving her platform like I've I kicked it with her you know briefly last year and like she's so well-intentioned and so sweet and 
yeah. powerful spokesperson and like so many wonderful things to be said about her. And it's also, it's like you get to a level of celebrity and it's, there's only so much power in like shouting out, you know, other Brown totally. like, or black or Brown, you know, young organizers. And, and also when you think about it, like how do we really uplift people? Is it just by giving them a platform or a bigger space to share their message? And I think that's like where a lot of it, mm -hmm. a lot of the thinking around impactful climate organizing goes wrong, where it's like, we just need to be heard more. You know, it's like, well, kind of like that is part of it. And at the same time, a lot of people, you know, a lot of whether it's environmental institutions or governments or organizations are hearing the call from young organizers. Yeah. But it's not really backed up with leverages of political power. Right. So it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to think about. But I think, you know, power is, is shifting. And I think a lot of white institutions and white individuals and those who who have power in the environmental or climate space are recognizing like, yo, it's actually not actually not really time for white people to like be at the forefront right now and and mm -hmm. i think it's a healthy it's a healthy like challenging that is happening where we're all like one other thing i would say too like in, within the climate conversation i think so many people have the privilege some so many people that are in the, these spaces have the privilege of really thinking yeah. about climate as like an energy issue and like a policy right. issue and you know like from this very kind of removed perspective because you're not in, on the front lines and in, in a community who's who's like going through, you know, how are we going to access water? Like through the pandemic, indigenous communities don't have access to clean water. How are you going to wash your hands? It's more pragmatic. This this thing actually affects me. Absolutely. And it increases the importance in us humanizing this story. And that's, I think, part of why it's so important to have not just indigenous voices, but like for as, as a movement to really in, understand indigenous liberation struggle, you know, as a framework for implementing and learning from and holding space for within the climate, the larger climate conversation. Can you then define climate justice for me? Because you say, I hear a lot of people say climate justice or like they're, they're doing climate work, but not through the lens of climate justice. How do you define climate justice? Yeah, there's not one definition. I think a lot of people have much more succinct and brilliant, you know, ways of spelling it out than, than I'm about to right. spit. But like, I think overall climate justice is is like an ethic of how we approach the work of addressing the climate crisis that really centers the liberation and well-being of black brown and indigenous and poor communities when we look at the solutions that we build the justice that is achieved when we overcome the obstacles that the crisis lays out in front of us it's like it's and it's really understanding who benefits from addressing this crisis is it solely like energy and electric battery companies and tesla that mm -hmm. is like just pulling right. a profit by you know the same capitalist model but just with a green veneer or like green energy or is it really we really do have an opportunity here to challenge what business as usual looks like to elevate and ensure that like a green energy revolution a just transition away from fossil fuels really uplifts and elevates black brown and indigenous people front lines communities pipeline workers like you know even like white working class folks that are oftentimes working these jobs of putting money in the pockets of these big fossil fuel ceos by like being in the oil fields like how do we center right. those folks um so i think it's like a justice framework when we look at how the alternative future that really centers like those that are most affected by the crisis and those that have been on the front lines of demonstrating what you know building people power can look like you're a hip-hop artist as well like what role does your music career play in all of this we have some really exciting projects and campaigns coming up that really blend the art you know with some of this more just like revolutionary campaign work movement building and for me i think you look through through history and i think music and art is just a voice that reflects the times that we are in you know and, and helps shape the narrative 
whether it's mainstream media or just like the public consciousness has risen because of the artists and the kind of music that is being, the kind of stories that are being told through the music that is written. And I think hip hop has a specific legacy and really beautiful history that I'm like grateful to be a student of to continue like this revolutionary history. I think that is, you know, that artists have this responsibility to make the decision whether they make art for capital or for the revolution, you know, and, and right. I, should, I would like to do it for the latter and, and continue to push myself creatively to make incredible art because it's not just about, you know, you can have someone that wraps the craziest message in, you know, 10 minutes or in a three minute song or in one verse, um, but then like, you have to reach people as well. So it's like this interesting balancing act. And mm. so, you know, I don't know, I'm learning a lot as I go and we, we dropped, you know, a project last year in the middle of the pandemic and we have some just incredibly exciting projects that I'm super hyped to share with the world and some dope collaborations. I'm working with some awesome people. So I'm just hyped to share the next phase of, uh, of the music and of the movement we are. Yeah, man. I know it's been, it's been a blast when we were together, jumping around New York, going to a couple of your shows and yeah, you're right. Yeah, like bro. that's, that's something you do really well is it's like deep messages, but it's palpable to someone who's trying to have fun. And that's so important to meet people where they are. And I think you're doing a really incredible job with that. that. Okay. So a big question and quick hitter questions. If uh, this new initiative to bring indigenous youth leadership together is as successful as possible, what does the world look like in 10 years? What happens because of this? Yeah, I mean, I think the greatest vision for me from even when I was much younger was like, how do we build, how do we build the infrastructure for other young leaders to be able to like come up and not even in the sense of like building social capital or like celebrity, but it's like, how do we just ensure that folks have the tools that they need to like take care of themselves and their communities, whether it's food scarcity or this mm. pandemic, you know, these health crises that we're going to see more frequently because of the changing climate. Like our governments are not equipped to operate in a way that like values human life. Yeah. We have an opportunity to like be sovereign of, you know, these failing government states that just don't care about the people straight up and, and to build these alternatives, access to energy, this food sovereignty, housing sovereignty to really care for our communities and our people and I think there are so many folks that are doing that and it's not like we have all the answers or all the frameworks but like we want to bring in the folks that do have some pieces of those answers and to like coalesce it and build you know curriculum that can then be taught like across Native America and then more broadly as well um all right quick hitters just one to two sentences at most on these things we got three three questions what's the most impactful book you've read recently most impactful book ever recently, The uh, Inconvenient Indian by Thomas King. Right on. Uh, recommended to everybody. Who is the change maker you've been inspired by lately? I would say Emiliano Zapata and just that whole the movement of the Zapatistas, for sure. What habit, you're successful, you're doing a lot. What habit most helps you do what you do? Recently, just like working out every day, just being physical and being in my body. Really, really helpful to keep my, keep my mind right. Last segment is just the floor is yours. Whatever you want to share, you know, whatever you want to talk about, it's all you. Go ahead and close this out. My God. Appreciate you, man. No, I, uh, it's a really interesting moment that the world is in right now. And uh, one thing that makes this app more unique for me is the convergence of, of different potential futures, you know. And I think through the last year, beginning to understand, like scratching the surface of abolition and abolitionist frameworks, as world building and as like this language and this way of communicating around what an alternative world can look like, I think has really resonated with me because I think a lot of what indigenous people have existed through historically, we've been through apocalypse, Mm. you know, we've, we've experienced viruses and, you know, 
extermination of our peoples to large degrees and violence and enslavement and like that history we have pushed through so much of it and existed to be here and, and now we have no choice but just to continue imagining something that is more beautiful than what we have mm. and i think it really paints a really beautiful picture of what is possible through a lot of these struggles you know we look at whether it's standing rock or our relatives up north on Wet'suwet'en territory and on a Stoughton camp who are resisting the forced eviction from their own traditional homelands or our Tana Atam relatives, our Atam relatives who are resisting the, the building of Trump's border wall, having heavily militarized border wall that goes through their sacred sites. You know, a lot of these projects and campaigns to simply defend indigenous life are land reclamation projects. And in that, you know, indigenous people reclaiming opportunities to have sovereignty and stewardship and true consent over the lands in which have always been ours gives us an opportunity to fulfill our imagination around what alternative worlds can look like. And I think it really weaves into addressing the climate crisis. I think land back is a, is a crucial framework to adopt, expressing like explicit intention for intersectional, intersectionality in how we build land back and how that must be in alignment with reparations for our Black kin. Um, and so I think this year we're going to continue to see that narrative of land back, of land reclamation be pushed into more and more discourse and more people are going to understand it. I mean, I think one way to, for folks to think about it is it's it's not just, you know, we're going to evict all the white people and send them back to here. That's not it at all. It's like, right, right. it's really, we want to challenge this settler relation that has been implemented across the continent of how we relate to land. And we want to challenge that and bring forth something new, something more beautiful, something that does honor life, that does honor our kinship, our relationship to one another, to our communities. Um, and I think that plays into policing and police violence too. When, when we have decision-making power over the lands that have always been traditionally ours, like part of that framework is gonna be a world without, you know, these this violent police state and so I, I, I'm very optimistic and hopeful and I'm really grateful to honestly a lot of the people that I'm looking to, towards too that are either academics or organizers or people engaging in this discourse like folks are optimistic folks are excited folks are mm, you know yeah. there is a very powerful flame that has been late I think our generation has reached this massive moment of politicization which I think is really important we are becoming more politically aware than ever um, and myself as an artist you know I'm carrying that responsibility in a different way than you are and that the next person is and I think we all have different means and different ways in which we can bring our light to the world to help transform our realities and I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of this moment and just thank you for the opportunity to to give me this platform and allow me to chop it up about some of this stuff i'm excited Tesca martinez i love you bro i love all the love things you you're doing dog. thank you for doing what you're doing and uh yeah thank you for coming on brother till next time bro cheers Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social. We're WWDKpod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care.